Actually, they are able to function better because they have been trained to use the correct form of Arabic as opposed to somebody, let's say, trying to take a taxi in Damascus or Cairo. And then the minute they try to tell the driver that they want to go somewhere, the driver will immediately notice that they're actually not very good at speaking Arabic. And they either laugh at them, they make fun of them, or at least they will overcharge them. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Munther Yunus, a trailblazer in the field of Arabic language instruction, discusses his 31-year career at Cornell and the innovative educational materials he has in the works. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Munther Yunus, the director of Cornell's Arabic program. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Munther. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, hosting me here. We are excited to hear more about the wonderful Arabic program that you have built at Cornell. Before we dive into this, can you talk a little bit about your background and your path with languages? Yeah, I have always been fascinated by language um, since I was a very, uh, a very young child. Um, and I, in college, I majored in English and I had a degree in English literature. And then I pursued a degree in linguistics at the University of Texas in Austin. And um, then I taught linguistics, I taught English, and then I immigrated to this country in 1986. And um, uh, there wasn't um, much demand for my English teaching, so I started mm. teaching Arabic here. There was a lot of demand for Arabic. So I transitioned into teaching Arabic as a foreign language in 1986. Um, I started at the Defense Language Institute in California, and then I um, was offered the job here at Cornell in 1990, and I have been here since that time. Wow, that's a long time. Yes, 30 years, 31 years, actually. Wonderful. And um, since then, since 1990, I've been working on building a an Arabic program, and now um Uh, when, I, when I started, I was just by myself here, and now we have uh, three other people working uh, with me in the program. That's great. Cornell's Arabic program is unique in that it integrates written Arabic, so modern standard Arabic, and spoken Arabic, uh, and spoken Arabic, the Arabic dialects, um, in a way that reflects the use of the language by native speakers. Can you please tell us more about this integrative approach and how it differs from other programs in the United States? Yes. Um, most programs in the United States um, have historically introduced um, what's called modern standard Arabic. In fact, um, even the term modern standard Arabic is not really accurate. It should be called mm. modern standard written Arabic. It's mm. a written language, not really the spoken one. Although it's used on, um, uh, on the radio, on TV, um, in the um, like in some formal interviews and so on, but in yeah. ordinary conversations, uh, people use a dialect or a local variety. Yeah. Um, so um, 
our philosophy at Cornell uh, since I started in 1990 uh, has been to build a program that basically reflects the use of the language as it is used in real life in the Arab world. In one way, it's sort of a more honest approach um, mm. in language instruction. And second, in that it prepares our students to really deal with the situation uh, as it is, not as it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, previously, students used to, when they studied Arabic here, they would uh, study Arabic for a year, two years, three years. Sometimes they would go to an Arabic-speaking country and they would try to uh, talk to people and they would sound funny. And, yeah. uh, uh, and that, so, um, yeah, that's that was the, the rationale. And uh, that, so the philosophy came out of that. So what do the students in your program say about this this approach? And have you noticed any differences in proficiency, maybe from how it used to be at Cornell or experiences at the DLI and, and what you have built here now at Cornell? Uh, well, uh, our students actually, when they come to the program, they don't know about these issues. The, the issues come up normally when they go and um, experience Uh, uh, the linguistic life in the Arab world. And our students who um, would go on study abroad programs in, in Arabic-speaking countries they would always come back and tell us that they acted as interpreters for students from other programs who uh, studied only uh, modern standard Arabic or modern standard written Arabic. Um, Here, what I find to be a rewarding experience that students actually enjoy um, Arabic much more than I hear about other programs, uh, because Arabic is known to be a difficult language um, or has this this reputation of being a difficult language Mm -hmm. in other programs because of this, the fact that it's uh, often taught as as uh, as almost a dead language. It's not the way people actually speak, the way they should speak, or the way they write. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this program, we're able to integrate uh, real, uh, like real life Arabic, including Arabic culture um, and different aspects of Arabic uh, culture. Yeah. So students are more able to function when they go abroad as a result of this integrative approach then? Yes, that is correct. And um, they actually, they are able to function better because they have been trained to use the correct form of Arabic in the right Mm -hmm. situation there, as opposed Mm -hmm. to somebody, let's say, trying to take a taxi in Damascus or Cairo. And then the minute they try to tell the driver that they want to go somewhere, the driver will immediately notice that um, they're actually not very good at speaking Arabic. And they either... (laughs) laugh at them, they make fun of them, or they, um, at least they will overcharge them because they know (laughs) as they should. Well, we've spoken with a few guests this season about the difficulty many language educators face when teaching with outdated textbooks or rigid structures that don't support best practices in SLA. Uh, you've authored five Arabic textbooks. How are your materials different? Um, and how does your integrative approach translate into textbooks? Yeah. Um, as I said, it's it, it, a te- the, the kind of textbooks we, um, or I have worked on 
actually reflect what goes on in Arab culture. So the kind of materials that we use are have more life in them. They're more interesting. Mm-hmm. And they are not... When you, when you teach modern written Arabic, modern standard written Arabic, um, you're basically stuck with the kind of text that that language is used for, which is the language of the media, um, very sort of high literature, but uh, you're missing out on things like songs and jokes and everyday conversations, everyday life uh, that, um, you know, that goes on in real life in the Arab world. Uh, it's almost like trying to teach, uh, like imagine teaching Latin, for example, to students. I mean, it's more of a, an intellectual exercise than actually uh, a, a real fun activity uh, that's, that, um, where students can actually go to a country and sure. enforce what they have learned and use it and feel good about uh, they're really communicating in it. They're not just reading a text. Um, and this is uh, it's reflected in these text, textbooks that um, I have um, co- co- I, I work with, with a number of people from different institutions. Um, so we, we worked together on producing this set of textbooks, which we found to be more interesting, more authentic, mm-hmm. um, uh, that prepare students for real life in uh, the uh, modern Arabic-speaking world. And of course, I mentioned that, sorry to for the interruption here, but um, we should also ma- mention that, that we do not neglect written Arabic. That's mm-hmm. what it's called integrated in that our students are able to speak Arabic um, the way people actually speak it, not the way they should speak it according to somebody else's uh, rules or ideas. And also they're able to read it the way Arabs actually read the, um, the, the language. So just to, um, um, uh, to reiterate the, the, main, the main philosophy, it's reflecting what actually goes on and preparing students to deal with that situation as it is. That's great. And I think one aspect that you've been working on that really helps support that goal is um, the audio and video materials that you have created recently. So you were working on a companion website for one of the textbooks, and I am not even going to attempt to pronounce the name of that textbook. Maybe you can do that for us. Um, you've been working on that together with your Cornell colleague, uh, Magda Weatherspoon. So can you talk a little bit more about these audio and video materials and how they help advance your students' proficiency? Yes, the series that we have worked on, I w- I've worked with uh, Magda, who is my colleague here, and um, a professor at, univers- at uh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh University in Scotland, mm-hmm. one of our teachers who went to complete a PhD at the Michigan State University, Elizabeth Huntley, um, and also a professor at Denison University in Ohio. We have, we have worked on this, uh, in the, on the series. It's called Arabiyat An-Nas, which, I mean, it was, uh, we chose the name for a reason, which is it's the language of the people, actually mm-hmm. a reflection of real life. Um, so the way people actually speak the language And um, in the first yearbook, and we have two versions of this. We have an Egyptian version and a Levantine version. Mm. Um, and for both, we, have, we um, did a series of videos and audios on location in Arabic-speaking country. In the Egyptian one was done in Cairo, and it, had, it, had, it, it has been published. It was published uh, last year, actually. 
And we're using it now at Cornell and a few other institutions actually are using Great. Yeah, it's called Arabiyat al-Nas fi Masr, Arabiyat al-Nas in Egypt. Hmm. We're currently working on the, or updating actually, the older version, which is the Arabiyat al-Nas fi Bilad al-Sham, which is the, um, the, uh, the, the Arabic of the people in the Syrian area, in the Levant. Hmm. And then in second year Arabic, we combine the two. So we have just second year Arabic for both tracks. They mm-hmm. come in and um, uh, so they, they have input from both the Egyptian version and the Levantine version. Nice. And then they, they produce in the variety that, that is suitable for the institution or the teacher or the setting. Um, and so um, the uh, we had... Uh, a set of videos and also a set of audio um, audios that we're currently working on a set of audio audios with um, a producer in Lebanon um, who is doing a, a great job actually with uh, yeah she's a professional producer um, so the quality is going to be a little better than the previous edition, first edition. I think the materials you're referring to there are the radio drama uh, that goes along with that textbook series. Is that correct? With the second textbook, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that project in particular, about the, the content there? Yes, yeah. We have, um, this is the second year book that I'm working on with another four colleagues from Edinburgh, Denison, uh, Michigan State, and uh, Magda at uh, Cornell. Uh, so we've worked on a storyline, and then we developed uh, a textbook around this with mm. text. Um, so the the um, the radio drama is um, we have an Egyptian speaker who uh, a young man who falls in love with a, a Palestinian Jordanian young woman mm. work together in uh, in a radio station in uh, London hmm. and so their story develops and as it develops they uh, they have, they conduct interviews and they deal with different issues so that the book is. Uh, theme-based in that they start with, let's say, getting a job and then issues with dealing with language. And mm-hmm. then uh, we go into health, uh, food. Uh, um, and so the story develops along with uh, tackling those themes linguistically. And it ends up with a um, uh, conference on the environment in Jordan. And they they meet, they, they meet, her family there, and then the family accepts him as a uh, a son-in-law. So it's like it develops that way. Yeah, we like stories with happy endings. Yeah. We need more of those <laughs> these days, don't we? <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. So I've seen um, some of the materials that you have developed as part of your uh, textbook series that you shared um, during some of our workshops here at Cornell. And and they're wonderful. They're very engaging. Um, and that's what we've heard from some of the students in your program as well, that they really respond well to this and they enjoy the materials. So do you have any suggestions for other educators who are interested in developing similar materials? Where do they start? Like, what infrastructure do they need? Because yours were done professionally, Right. I mean, we uh, complete the script here. We uh, the the authors. Uh, we got together and decided on the story, and then we had to be careful about the language and the themes, development of the story, and uh, as along with that, we also thought of the like grammar topics that needed to be handled and different mm-hmm. and so on, and issues of 
reinforcement, for example, reinforcement in terms of the vocabulary, the grammar, and so on. And so we, we had this vision that we worked on, and then we um, hired this uh, producer in Lebanon, um, and she uh, she's working, she's actually the director um, of a program in uh, a performing arts school in Lebanon. So she's, mm-hmm. yes, uh, she has experience with this, and she also, she's working with her own students who are like aspiring uh, uh, actors and they they liked the the idea and so we worked on them on the um on the personalities of the characters themselves and because also there's with arabic there's an additional issue of uh language variety so we Mm. wanted somebody who can speak who would sound like an egyptian speaker and somebody sound like an iraqi speaker and so on uh so she was able to do that for us and we worked with her and she would send us samples of uh, speakers, and then we would say, you know, you need to do this about that to sound more authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think from my own experience, we started with, we had sort of modest beginnings in that we started with a small budget, and then we would ask somebody who we knew, who knew somebody, and to help us with this. But I think working with a professional in a, mm. a performing arts uh uh, in, who really has experience with this um, and with people who really can play that role can make a huge difference. Um, and so there's, a, there's now you can see a big difference between the kind of material that, that has been developed, that was, that's, that was developed and also being developed in Lebanon now as compared to the, as, um, yeah, compared to the material that we, we um, produced 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Sort of mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems like some of your recipe for success is also in the fact that you are collaborating not only with other um, Arabic faculty in the United States, but also with these um, professionals abroad, right? That is correct, yeah. And um, I mean, she is uh, uh, the, the leader of the effort in Lebanon is uh, Lina Khouri. And she is, I mean, she comes up with ideas that we actually haven't thought of in terms mm. of like she would say, you know, we sent the script and she said, well, this is actually, you need a little more life in this. This this is, you know, it's good grammatically or good in terms mm-hmm. of vocabulary, but in, in, ter- in order to make it interesting and appealing to people to listen and so on, you need to do this. Yeah. She was giving us a lot of tips about improving the quality of the, of the dialogues. Mm-hmm. That's great. So tell us, where can our listeners find out more about Cornell's Arabic program and about your work? Um, about my work. Um, um, the, um, we are known as the, uh, the, the capital, um, you might say, of integration, the integrated approach. And uh, many other programs are following our example with that. Um, we... Uh, we started small, and um, I'm not. Re- I don't know how much of it has to do with with uh, our approach, and how much of it has to do with the demand for Arabic in general. Especially after September the 11th, there was a, a rise in demand mm-hmm. Arabic. So um, uh, the program has um, the the numbers have significantly increased, although they they plateaued uh, lately at about between 100 and 120 students um, Arabic students in the whole program in general. Um, and, um, in, I mean, we have, I would say we have like three different tracks in the Arabic program. One is 
what we call the integrate approach. And we also have students who are interested in reading the Quran, for example, the mm-hmm. most religious text um, for religious purposes. Um, and some of these are Muslim students. Uh, they have a Muslim background, others uh, with, uh, without that kind of background. But they're interested in knowing more about the language of the, of, uh, the, the Holy Book of Islam. So we offer a course in that direction. We also offer a course for um, Arabic heritage speakers. This is mm-hmm. something that has um, that we have seen arise in numbers um, in lately. In yeah. fact, um, uh, students uh, come in who have grown up in a, an Arabic-speaking household, but they are virtually illiterate when it comes to reading and writing. And um, I mean, probably um, uh, Italian kids, for example, or German kids who grew up in a German-speaking household and speaking German at home uh, would probably be, uh, would also learn to read and write German, but mm-hmm. Arabic because of the of the fear of written Arabic and this separation between written Arabic and spoken Arabic. Um, many of those students are... Um, intimidated by the written language. So they come to us fluent in a dialect, but not knowing how to read a single word in it, not knowing how to read or write. So we offer this course for these students who are fluent or they can function in Mm -hmm. spoken dialect um, in Lebanese or Egyptian or Iraqi uh, or some other dialect. And then we offer them a basic literacy course and we carry them from point zero in reading and writing the language to they can actually enroll in a um, high intermediate or advanced level course just after one semester um, of literacy uh, because wow. they already have yeah because they already have that um, the uh, the competence in, mm-hmm. uh, in the dialect in the colloquial variety. That's great, Mother. Before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language that you speak, you love, you are learning, you want to learn. Can we hear that word? Yeah, thank you. Actually, I, I've learned many languages. I love languages. I've always loved languages. And, uh, but I've been thinking about this question, that my <laughs> word. And my favorite word actually is an English word. It's mm-hmm. the word friend. For some mm-hmm. reason, this word is, has some magic about it that I cannot find in any other um, uh, I would say in any other word in, in any of the languages I'm familiar with. It sounds good. Um, there's something about the sound that the word friend sounds great. I also, um, I run a soccer team. And whenever I feel um, good about the team, I say friends or dear friends. When I am not very happy with them, I say, you know, some like players or something like that. <laughs> I use that sometimes even like with my children, you know, it's when I say friend to a son or a daughter, it's very different from saying son or daughter Mm. is a friend. And uh, something about that word, um, I find it to be much more something about it, something magical, I would say, like more, more powerful than the word wife or husband or one of these like Mm. roles that Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. we have in society. So friend, that's the word. That's my favorite word. Um, I love it. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, one third, thank you so much for speaking of language with us. 
You're very welcome. Thank you, guys. Next week, Mariam C. will join our podcast. Dr. C. is the director of the African Language Program at Columbia University. She gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on critical thinking in world language teaching. You can watch her full talk on our YouTube channel. And, of course, you can listen to next week's episode online. Until then, Auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.